You're listening to Nightlight Radio Network. This is Dr. Bob Hieronymus, co-host of 21st Century Radio. We are happy to present this rebroadcast of our show on Nightlight. Well, there is a higher law than man. There's no doubt about it, even though some people don't believe that. Welcome back to 21st Century Radio. I'm your host, Dr. Bob Hieronymus, and our executive producer and research assistant, Laura Cortner. Our engineer is Anita Brockington. Before we introduce you to our guest, Preston Dennett, and his topic of underwater UFOs and the healing power of UFOs, I have a dedication here to make. Tonight's show is dedicated to my dear older sister, Dolly, who passed away peacefully in her sleep at home yesterday. Dolly has been suffering from chronic pain for years, and this release is a blessing. But I will still miss her greatly. She was named for our mother, Florence, but we all called Dolly her Dolly because she was genuinely sweet and lovable to everybody. Such a generous heart she had. I have about a dozen stepsisters and brothers and one half-sister, but Dolly was the only sibling who shared the same mother and father as me. And when we were younger, I'll never forget how often she would pull my mother off me and then start taking the beating that was meant for me. Always she stood up for the underdog for the rest of her life. I also want to give grace and thanks to my half-sister Barbara Shoemaker for all her help to Dolly in these past few days, and a huge thank you for my dearly beloved Dr. Queen Zahara for handling all the initial details yesterday for me. Zahara truly acted the role of shepherd at the crossroads for Dolly's last 24 hours and performed a great service. I love you more and more every day, my queen. Now, we posted a photo on Facebook of Dolly holding a figurine of Frodo with Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, a passion we shared in common. She named her late cat Frodo, and Zoe says she saw them dancing already, reunited together in the spirit world. That is, she saw the cat and her <laughs> Dolly dancing with together. I also saw Dolly, re- saw Dolly reunited with her, her father and our grandparents, and in the loving hands of her Savior, Jesus Christ. Rest in peace, dear Dolly. I'm glad you have been set free. Now on to Preston Dennett and UFOs. Preston Dennett began investigating UFOs and the paranormal in 1986, when he discovered that his family, friends, and co-workers were having dramatic, unexplained encounters. Since then... He has interviewed hundreds of witnesses and investigated a wide variety of paranormal phenomena. He is a field investigator for the MUFON UFO Network and the author of 23 books and 100 articles. And they have been translated into numerous foreign languages, and that's really helpful. He has also taught classes on paranormal subjects, lectures across the country, and this will be Preston's 12th appearance on 21st Century Radio. Obviously, we think very highly of his research. Hour one, we will review his latest book called Healing Power of UFOs, 300 True Accounts of People Healed by Extraterrestrials. In hour two, we'll focus on his 
2018 titled Undersea UFO Base, an in-depth investigation of USOs in the Santa Catalina Channel. Welcome back to 21st Century Radio, Preston Dennett. Hey, thank you. It's an honor. Thank you very much. Well, it's an honor to have you. You really have been doing some great stuff, Preston. I've you, been working hard. <laughs> I know you're one of the hardest UFO workers I've ever known. And the best thing about you is you keep checking, you keep checking what people are saying rather than just accepting what they're saying, and that's enormously important in this particular subject. Now, so how did you get involved with UFO research, Preston? Uh, involuntarily. It was not my choice, something I certainly wasn't looking for. Uh, and, you know, what happened, you know, I was very skeptical of this subject and uh, heard a report on the news about a sighting over Alaska back in 1986, uh, November. I remember it vividly. We were all there, my whole family. I, you know, I have five brothers and sisters, a uh, pretty big family, and we all just kind of went, huh. And didn't think much of it, except I thought, my gosh, you know, this pilot is putting him, his reputation on the line. And I remembered that my brother, years ago, earlier, had said he'd seen a UFO, and we all just kind of laughed at him. And I asked him about it, and he described this really amazing encounter. Uh, he had, was with two friends, who I knew, and they chased this metallic ship down the Reseda Boulevard, actually, here in Southern California. And I uh, thought, wow, you know, and can I talk to you, you know, Phil and Greg, the other guys who were there? And he's like, sure. And uh, it was pretty compelling what they were telling me. So I started asking everyone I knew. I uh, found people at work who had seen UFOs. I had a friend who had missing time. Someone at work had missing time. Boy, what a big surprise this was, wasn't it? For all of you, yeah. all of a sudden you bump into this? Not good news. It hit me like a ton of bricks. Uh, I bought all the UFO books. I was going to disprove this subject. And uh, found out, actually, there was a lot of evidence out there. It had been studied for decades. Uh, still wasn't being taken seriously. It was you know, fraught with controversy. All kinds of things that really um, I wasn't expecting. But did find a lot of people within my circle of family and friends and uh, coworkers who had really dramatic encounters. I bet, you I, uh, I bet you I laughed at UFOs harder than you did in the old days. <laughs> I just didn't believe it. I remember seeing, I like, either. In Search Of. There yeah. was, that was, like, one of the only TV programs oh, that, I remember that, that one, featured yeah. it. And I'm like, yeah, right. You know, this whole family claimed they see, saw a UFO. And I'm like, well, they were, you know, obviously misperceiving. Uh, I found, you know, I, I had made a bunch of false assumptions about this subject, uh, which I think skeptics in general do. They don't realize how much evidence there is out there. Uh, they don't realize that, how many people are seeing these kinds of things? Right, yeah. Well, ever since New York Times, it was just a couple of years ago, broke that story on giving their support to looking into UFOs. And now there's some very big articles all over the place. Uh, it seems that, that the, the government now is accepting the fact that they should let people know about them. And I just feel so poorly for all those other people that lost their jobs, got punished in one way or the other, ridiculed etc. And now we're finding out that all of it was basically true. Yeah, can you imagine? I mean, there are reports of people who have lost their lives over this subject. Uh, it's taken very, very seriously at high yeah. levels of government. They've known for a very long time it's a real phenomena and still ridiculed witnesses. Uh, in my opinion, our military handled this pretty poorly. Uh, 
No, I do have sympathy for them because this is a difficult situation. And from a military standpoint, this is an unknown and a threat to national security for sure. Yeah. So they've cut, there's still a cover up. Yes, it's crumbling. It's this disclosure movement is moving forward, but it's still not open yet. Our work isn't done. Yeah, still people are going to get fired for it every now and then if you open your mouth too much. Well, how did you get involved in researching UFO healings? I interviewed this lady who had had this dramatic sighting. She started describing this other experience she had where she had been diagnosed with a cyst in her fallopian tubes. It was causing her all kinds of problems. And uh, mind you, she had had a lot of sightings. She'd been abducted for years and years described a very rich history of UFO encounters within her own life and uh, was diagnosed with the cyst and had it diagnosed and an operation was set surgery. And the night before the surgery, she had a visitation in her room. She doesn't really remember what happened other than, you know, quote, they came uh, to visit her and she goes to the doctor the next day. And they're like, well, you know, they took the MRIs and x-rays prior to surgery and they're like, well, this is strange. You know, we can't find the cyst. And, and uh, did you have surgery? Where did you go to have surgery? And she's like, well, I didn't, you know, knowing, you know, probably what happened here. And this person who reads the x-ray is like, well, we know you did because there's fluid here, you know, in your fallopian tubes, which is only present after having had surgery. And, and then pointed out a laser scar on her abdomen. And accused her of having surgery, which she denied. It's <laughs> um, a little so. That's a little bit backwards here. <laughs> right. Sorry. So this is an excellent case. Uh, there's a, other cases just like this. Uh, Bill Hamilton caught a case again with before and after X-rays of a lady who had a cyst in her breast, and had an experience literally uh, the day before the operation. This is a phenomenon that turns up over and over again. In UFO healing cases, ETs will heal people immediately prior to them having their scheduled surgery. Mm -hmm. So that happened in this case for sure. So they must be pretty smart cookies to be able to do such things. I, I really was excited when I read the uh, case number 001, the young boy uh, who was driving his tricycle when he had... A problem. He uh, he fell down and broke his with a leg, or was his arm? Right. He believes it was his arm. It's a very early case. The first one actually that I could find. Yeah, nineteen fourteen. Wow, that's really going back there, brother. Can you imagine? I mean, this phenomenon has been going on for at least a hundred years. Yeah. Uh, certainly since the nineteen fifties, it kicks up. But that's the earliest case I could find. And this kid, see, you know, falls, broke, breaks his arm. Uh, he thinks it's broken and sees this little short figure with compelling eyes uh, and uh, thinking it's a leprechaun or something. Like, the figure says, no, I'm a gnome, uh, which is kind of interesting. Yes, it is. Yeah, <laughs> I was fascinated, really. Uh, so please go on. I, I got too excited there. Yeah, I mean, there's a long tradition certainly of these kinds of creatures mm -hmm. throughout the world, whether it's fairies, gnomes, leprechauns, and things like this, which some researchers, you know, have linked to the UFO phenomena. Certainly there are a lot of parallels and 
while this child didn't see a UFO per se, you know, a craft, he did see this short figure. Two and, and a half uh, feet tall, you said, something like that. Two and a half right. feet tall. And who proceeds to heal him, uh, which is really unusual. Um, didn't use any, you know, instrumentation, just sort of, a, at least that wasn't reported. Mm -hmm. But I have to say that, you know, of the 300 cases, a good 10% don't involve instruments. It's, it's more of a hands-on healing done on the part of the ETs. Do you, uh, do so you that think, does happen. Yeah, do you think we humans can do that sometime in the future, Preston? Oh, yeah. The hands-on healing. Yeah, I put a chapter on this in the book uh, because this is something the ETs are very interested in teaching people. Yeah. And, yeah. and it's something that, you know, it's probably the most common thing I see in terms of people who have had extensive contact and uh, come away from their experience transformed in some way. Often it'll be like maybe channeling or dowsing or giving psychic readings, but usually it's some sort of Reiki or hands-on healing mm -hmm. uh, of some form and often very effective. I mean, one lady I interviewed, she quit her job as a telephone operator and uh, became a massage therapist and healer. And she got all these testimonials of people seeing light coming out of her hands and actually healing them. And as she's doing it, she gets this vision in her head of the gray ETs up, um, up in their ship. They're like fussing around with knobs and levers and stuff to assist her in her healing. Uh, it's very fascinating. That is. That is. Uh, it's a... Uh, it kind of reminds me of what we used to think about in 1968 and 69 of, of literally uh, helping others out without looking for any pay, any anything. You just help. Uh, you serve. I think that's a major part of, if you don't mind my saying, Jesus. Uh, do you mind that? Oh, not at all. Okay. Yeah. All right. But, yeah. but you know, one of the great healers of all time um, who can actually actually taught other people, of course, to heal, especially women. He was much more strong in relationship to women than than our present uh, any any religion talks about, uh, and that's that's one of the things that excited me so much to learn about that. Well, what types of oh, break time on twenty first century radio with our guest Preston Dennett? We're going to be talking about the healing power of UFOs. 300 true accounts of people healed by extraterrestrials published by Blue Giant Books in 2019 and later with the undersea UFO base. You want to hang around for that because that is extraordinary. Hello, this is Alejandro Rojas, UFO journalist with OpenMinds.TV. You're listening to 21st Century Radio with Dr. Bob Hieronymus. You can read more about us at OpenMinds.TV. Welcome back with our guest, Preston Dennett. We're talking about the healing power of UFOs, 300 true accounts of people healed by extraterrestrials. You think we like this book? Yes, we more than like this book. We love this book. Are you with us, Preston? I'm here. Okay. What types of illnesses and conditions have been healed? Oh, it's astonishing. You know, of the 300 cases I document here, 70 involve injuries of all kinds. And by that, I mean, you know, cuts, uh, broken bones, uh, head injuries, back injuries, uh, or a huge variety of injuries. Uh, about 50 cases involving minor illnesses and infections, you know, like the flu, perhaps, or uh, colds and things like that. Uh, 120 cases involving serious illnesses and 40 
involving cancer. So, I mean, I put a list in the book. Here's, I'll just do a quick rundown of some of the cases because, I mean, it's a, the variety is amazing. It is. It is uh, amazing. AIDS. There's two cases involving AIDS. Arthritis, 20 cases. Uh, asthma, uh, Chagas disease. There's one case involving that. Crohn's disease, colitis, diabetes, diphtheria, a couple of cases involving eczema, epilepsy, a uh, bunch of cases involving eye improvements and dental improvements, uh, kidney problems, liver problems, hypoglycemia, uh, case involving multiple sclerosis, one involving muscular dystrophy. I mean, it goes on, rheumatism, strokes. There's a very long list of conditions that ET's healed. And what I've discovered is if you examine onboard UFO accounts, there's a very strong medical theme that runs through them. The single most common thing people report, and this is borne out by several studies and certainly my own research, is that people are physically examined. And I believe, you know, at this point, that the extraterrestrials know more about the human body than we do. Yeah, I uh, bet you and, they do. Yeah, and it's evidenced by the fact that they're curing what we would call chronic diseases. Well, now, how are these healings done, and where do they take place? You know, do they these people go to an office or something? Uh, well, the healings are done in a number of different ways. I would say most common. It's probably about 50% of the cases involve light uh, from of some form. Perhaps it's coming from the UFO itself and shining down on them, or perhaps they're taken on board and the ETs are holding instruments that emit laser-like lights. Uh, that's very common. There are some cases involving medicine. That's not common, but a good you know 10, 20% involve pills or lotions of some form or you know a drink that, that they're given uh, sometimes you know there's no known method it's just being in the mere presence of a ufo seems to affect a cure so it's hard to say as far as where these cases are taking place yeah uh we do know that uh, about half of the cases people are taken on board a craft and they're given some sort of a operation or surgery or procedure. In uh, about 20% of the cases, people are outside, uh, perhaps driving their car or walking. Uh, another 20% people are in their homes, usually their bedrooms. And here, this really shocked me, and I wasn't expecting it. 10% of the cases, um, at least, take place in hospitals, in hospital <laughs> rooms. Oh, that's wonderful. That's wonderful because there are so many mistakes made in hospitals. I'm glad, glad they're hanging around there. My, I, I talked yeah. about, I talked about my, my sister. I mean, she was treated terribly, terrible. Northwest Hospital has something is really wrong there. Excuse me, but boy, yeah, no, I mean, our our, our medical health systems got some real problems, and this comes up. I mean, there's one case where. A gentleman was visited by ETs who were working on his knee. He's like, oh, you're hurting me, you're hurting me. And they said, well, we're trying to heal your knee. Um, this was a gray who was manipulating his knee. And the other gray, there was two of them, was in the bathroom, lifted up some pain medication and walked back into the you know, main room, the living room, and uh, asked the, the witness 
about its use and what was it for. And often, you know, they will express sort of a, not a disdain, but a sort of a disappointment in how primitive our uh, yeah. own medical research is. Mm-hmm. That does come up. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Well, but, what, well, what kinds of people are being healed? All kinds of people. Like, this was the really kind of interesting to me at first. And it also bothered me because I couldn't find any patterns. Uh, the first thing I looked for, you know, of the 300 cases is, you know, it's evenly divided between men and women, certainly all across the planet. Uh, most of the cases are from the United States, but that's certainly because uh, you know, I'm centered here in, here in California. Uh, but absolutely worldwide, the United States produces more than anyone else. Can- Canada, I think, is next, then England and Russia and all the major so-called superpowers. Uh, which to- makes total sense. I uh, couldn't find any basis on you know, race or religion or age even. There's cases involving very young children, uh, cases involving very elderly people as well. So what I did finally find is one pattern which kept turning up. And about, about the you know, 50th time I saw it, I'm like, well, this, I, I think this is a thing. And that is profession, a person's job. And it's a loose pattern, but what I found is that people who are doing good work for humanity in some capacity uh, have a much more higher likelihood of being healed. Now, if you have a history of UFO encounters, that certainly does increase your chances because about half the cases involve people who have a history of onboard experiences. Uh, But a good third don't. And this weird pattern kept turning up involving people who are Social workers, perhaps, inventors, doctors, turns up a lot, teachers, uh, entertainers even, uh, human rights activists, this sort of thing. And, yeah, it turns up enough for I'm like, huh, wow, here it is again. Yeah, yes, and that, that's super important. Service to others is the key to, in my opinion, absolutely most everything. That's how when people get involved with serving others without thinking about themselves— then that kind of love is this kind of love Jesus had, if you don't mind my saying. Right. There are at least three cases that support that. I find it interesting, a quote from Betty Andreessen, very oh. famous abductee, where the greys told her flat out that love is the answer for humankind. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I totally agree. It's, all, it's so simple and would solve so many of our problems. You're darn right. We understood that back in 1968 and 69. And that's what Woodstock was all about, but most people had no idea what was going on. Now, how many cases are there? Are there more healings or, or, or injuries? Uh, you know, the 300 cases I've documented in this book are only the tip of the iceberg. I'm like, still yeah. finding new cases every time I speak about this. And here's the thing. Um, I think most UFO researchers will agree with this. Most people don't report their sightings, their yeah. experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, something I always ask people when I interview them, like, have you told anyone else? You know, who did you report? Did you report call to the police, a UFO reporting center? Uh, most people don't. I'm going to say one in ten do it, and that's being very generous. Uh, I'm probably closer to one in a hundred, so I'm guessing there's way more than what we're seeing here. And here's another problem: there's a wide variety of alternative healings coming from different sources. Uh, If you look into the literature on angels, it's very compelling and are a lot of healing cases and some really 
remarkable similarities to you know ET encounters, Indeed. beings of light coming and healing people. Light seems to be an extremely important aspect. Whether or not, it's, I've always been curious about their difference between their green lights and their blue lights and their orange lights, as to whether or not they have. Do you know if they have any speciality with with each one of those different colors? I uh, have not been able to determine that because what I'm seeing in these cases is a wide variety of colors. You sure are. <laughs> um, there was, yeah, I mean, the Peruvian's customs official sees a, goes out onto his veranda and is, sees a UFO up there and, and this purple beam of light comes down and strikes him. And he is healed of nearsightedness as a result of you know, being struck by this beam of light and his rheumatism, his chronic rheumatism cleared up right afterwards. Wonderful. How wonderful. Well, is there any evidence or proof to support UFO healings? Oh, yeah. You know, some cases rely on, you know, eyewitness testimony for the most part. Other cases are extremely well documented. Uh, there was a case from Brazil, Ventura Maceres, who was struck by a beam of light from a UFO. And uh, there was a lot of physical evidence to support his story because he suffered from what amounted to a light case of radiation sickness. He had vomiting, nausea. Hmm. Uh, he, there was burn marks on the tops of the eucalyptus trees. A bunch of fish in a nearby stream died. All these you know, ancillary pieces of evidence to support it. And then this gentleman started to grow a third set of teeth. Mind you, he's 73. Oh, isn't um, that wonderful? Um, <laughs> Big and, surprise uh, he, there. <laughs> yeah, and he was examined by 40 or 50 different officials in different capacities, government officials, doctors, certainly, UFO investigators, law enforcement. Uh, a lot of people showed interest in his case you know, because it was so remarkable. Uh, another gentleman, Jim Schaefer from Winnipeg, Canada, uh, I interviewed him myself. He sent me his medical records uh, showing a cancerous tumor on his neck. Uh, he had an experience with this glowing orb, which went into his body. He went to sleep, woke up the next day, and this uh, tumor on his neck, a visible tumor, was gone. I was scheduled for surgery in about three days from then, I believe it was. Uh, went to the sur surgeon, and he had been very forthcoming with his doctor, um, he had his uh, medical history of UFO visitations and told his doctor what was happening because he'd come back with you know, cuts and bruises and things like this. And the doctor was like, huh, you know, I, I don't know what to say, but I can't explain this or that. And then he goes and says, well, you know, the tumor was taken away. And they were astounded. Uh, they still did the operation to remove necrotic tissue, uh, but could not find any cancer and marked his case as a miraculous healing. Didn't put in, you know, ET healed him, <laughs> um, but could, yeah, could not account for it and definitely found him believable, and certainly I did. Mm -hmm. Well, what kind of ETs are performing these healings? Another very interesting thing about this whole phenomena is I was kind of expecting to hear that these healings were mostly done by human looking, you know, so-called mm -hmm. Nordic. It's not a term I really like because uh, there are lots of human looking ETs who are not Nordic looking in, in that sense. Uh, one gentleman, he said it was the ET he saw really looked more Middle Eastern uh, mm -hmm. than anything else. And another gentleman said, oh, they look like, you know, maybe South American, Peruvian, Mexican. Uh, so you get all different types of human looking ETs. And that's definitely a category for sure. But 
half of the healings. Now, this is in cases where people see a humanoid. Half are some version of the greys. After that, it would be human-looking. Uh, there are a number of cases involving praying mantis ETs. Oh, that is special. Uh, it's it's and those are the main three types I see. You know, beyond UFO healing cases, and there's a huge category of just sort of a catch-all category of short humanoids, tall humanoids. Uh, as an example, one lady I interviewed, a uh, lady from Nebraska, a housewife suffering from hypoglycemia, uh, found herself in this chamber, like an underground base is what she thought it might be, and there was this nine-foot-tall humanoid uh, who has healed her. And she says it was not human. It had, it was, you know, eight or nine feet tall, had a very broad, broad face, a huge chin, huge forehead, very strange eyes, and it wasn't hair on his head. It was something else you said, like straw, very <laughs> thick and orange and stuck straight up. Isn't that, that's adorable. <laughs> and, I'm sorry. Yeah, and this being, you know, put these silver bell-like instruments on her body, which pulsed energy into her body. At the time, she was very sick. You know, she was passing out every day, uh, have, had a real blood sugar problem that the doctors could not diagnose. And uh, passed out at this point. She was very frightened and woke up back in her home, and she stopped passing out from that day on. She was fine. So, yeah, right. A wide variety of beings are doing these healings, but it's mostly grace. And for that matter, I mean, like here at this case, it's so bizarre. Uh, this guy's are driving to the hospital because he's in kidney pain from a kidney stone. It's very painful. He's rushing to the hospital, and a UFO shows up and starts circling the car, and his pain gets less and less and less and less. And the UFO darts away. The pain is gone. They go to the hospital anyway and cannot find any kidney stone, which had been previously diagnosed. So no being seen there. I don't know who's doing it. Yeah, yeah. Well, we need another break here on 21st Century Radio with our guest, Preston Dennett, The Healing Power of UFOs, 300 True Accounts. We're not going to get any 300, but let me tell you, this is an extraordinary book. Anybody interested in UFOs needs this book. We're going to try to put this book in the hands of many young people. Hi, I'm Michael A. Cremo. I'm author of the book Forbidden Archaeology, and I'm very happy to be on 21st Century Radio with Dr. Bob Hieronymus. It is a fascinating show, intellectually groundbreaking, presenting alternative points of view on all areas of science and popular culture. Okay. Welcome back to 21st Century Radio. We're still hearing UFOs in the background. And our guest, of course, is Preston Dennett. Now, Preston, what do these types of cases say about E.T.? Are they benevolent or are they hostile? Uh, well, yeah, I mean, this is a great question because what we see, you know, in terms of uh, the media with the UFO phenomena is it's very fear-based. Yeah. And these types of cases are not presented very often. That's right. Uh, certainly, I've you know, surveyed the major researchers, and pretty much all of them do have these kinds of cases. Uh, Bud Hopkins, certainly, David Jacobs, Edith Fiore, uh, Tim Beckley, Brad Steiger. I mean, I could go down the list. Barbara yeah. Lamb, Yvonne Smith, they're all reporting these types of cases, but we don't hear a lot about them. I think one of the reasons is that people who have traumatic experiences seek therapy and help, 
and uh, so try to sort of socialize their conflict and get some help. Uh, whereas people who are, say, healed uh, don't have that need and may be even more reluctant to report their case due to its sensational nature. Uh, but for sure, this phenomena of UFO healings shows a much brighter side to the ETs, a much more benevolent and positive side. And if you look at sort of the umbrella of human behavior and compare that to you know how the ETs are behaving, I think you'll find it's very similar in a lot of ways, except it's skewed towards the positive. Because what we don't see with in terms of onboard UFO experiences is what I would call sadism or torture or mass murderers or you know things like this uh the worst we really get is um some people do report pain certainly during some of these procedures uh it's not super common and often the pain is relieved uh once the patient starts feeling it uh but sometimes people feel like they're being treated very much like a lab rat a lab animal uh there's little regard for their feelings. Uh, the ETs are not very communicative, uh, communicative in some cases. Uh, that's a minority. I'm going to say a good half at least of the people who have had a healing uh, feel very benevolent towards the ETs. And there are a good number of cases that just smack of altruism. Uh, there's another percentage of cases that don't, where people feel like, you know, they're just using me to produce hybrid babies, uh, this sort of thing. Uh, there was one gentleman who didn't remember his experiences consciously. Uh, he went under hypnosis and recovered some fairly horrendous um, memories of operations at the hands of ETs. Uh, it was not a pleasant experience for him, even though they did cure him twice, once of a mole on his face and another of kidney stones. Uh, so it's, it's hard to really say you know, exactly the intentions of the ETs uh, in terms of the healing cases. But it does, to me, it sounds like, I mean, some of these cases, yeah, are absolutely altruistic. I've always been a bit concerned, though, about their um, the UFO itself. Some have seemed to be toxic when people get too close to them. Now, that's not what the ETs want to happen. It's just that, I know you, you listed one or two of the cases that I'm talking about in which they had cancer and it took a long time uh, and they eventually ended up dying, uh, unfortunately, and the government uh, the government ignored their problem altogether because they didn't believe that that had any that, that they actually were aboard an ET or uh, excuse me a UFO or was related to that. Do you remember those cases? Oh yeah, yeah, there are. A good, you know, hundred, several hundred cases involving what you would term injuries. Uh, that's you got to be careful when you use that term because some people just report like eye irritation. Is that an injury? Well, you know, in some cases, people have reported more serious uh, problems. It's not uncommon to have a migraine headache after a close-up UFO sighting. I did not know that was a thing, uh, but that certainly does turn up. Uh, there are a good number of cases where people have gotten too close to a UFO or were struck by a beam of light from one and suffered what would be diagnosed today, certainly, as radiation sickness. Uh, oh, and some have died from this. Mm -hmm. uh, so, yeah, there is a dark side to this phenomenon. Probably not a good idea to just run up to any UFO you see. 
But in general, I'm not, I don't think that this is something to be afraid of. I don't think they're trying to hurt people. That's not the agenda at all. Right. That, I agree. I agree. Uh, but I think the, the, the military is going to look at it a bit differently. And a lot of politicians are going to look at it differently. And that, that's why I think your book is so important. Uh, because of my being able to put this book in the hands of other people that I've argued with about this for some years is, is going to make me very happy. And I think it will make them happy, too. Because, uh, you know, all of us want to think more positively. Uh, what do these cases tell us about our own medical technology? We touched actually on this a little earlier. Yeah, well, certainly we're seeing some remarkable parallels. We do use light a lot more now to cure people. Uh, we're speeding up the healing of flesh wounds uh, using electrical impulses. We use uh, laser beams to cure people of... Uh, detached retina. There are cases just like that in the ET literature. Uh, Betty Hill, she described a laparoscopy before, you know, this was yes, in wide use. Right. So we know that uh, they're using basically the same methods we use. And these cases should show us that such a thing as chronic is a misnomer mm-hmm. or incurable. It's just not true. There are people, a lady from uh, Canada who had terminal cancer and was was expected to die, ended up having an onboard experience and a rather prolonged and painful operation at the hands of ETs, uh, who told her, don't take any more medicine after we're done. You know, just drink water. You're going to be fine. And she was. She got very sick afterwards. Doctors thought she was going to die. Her whole family was called. But she rallied and recovered completely from terminal cancer. Uh, there's a lot of cases like that. So I, I think this provides sort of an avenue or certainly hope uh, to look into, you know, so-called terminal cases and realize they're not. You know, why would an ET travel light years to cure someone of a common cold? Yeah, there's so many cases like this, too. I know. (laughs) Chuck Chuck Doyle from Kentucky, 13 years old, has a terrible head cold, is out in his backyard and struck by a beam of light from a UFO, which cures him. I mean, is this an accident? I don't know. Um, It's really hard to say. But there are so many cases like this. Jim Sparks, a well-known abductee, was cured. Oh, Jim, yeah. Yeah, he was cured of the flu. Later had an experience where he was taken on board a craft, and the ETs handed him this um, box, this clear little box filled with black goo. It stunk real bad. And they said, this is our (laughs) gift to you. He's like, well, what's this? And they're like, well, we removed this from your lungs. Oh, my gosh. Right. He was a heavy smoker at the time. Got another case just like this. Same exact thing. The witness says the same exact thing, except describes a slightly different container. It was really the only difference. And later, the ETs came back because this guy, the same guy, had started smoking marijuana. And the ETs were furious and said, you have to stop smoking marijuana. This is not the life we had planned for you. Yeah, they they do take part in your life, that's for sure. Uh, Do ETs help other people in other ways? Yes, and it's really remarkable. I keep hearing more cases like this. I just found a case where people saw a UFO hovering over the Three Mile Island plant, and it was immediately the next day that the officials announced that the damage was not nearly as bad as they thought it was, because they were expecting a full meltdown. And these witnesses are like, hmm, Could it be possible that ETs have healed or helped us? 
Got a lot of cases like this in the book. Here's a great one. This guy's driving along a highway. I believe this is in Colorado at night. And uh, suddenly this UFO appears in front of him on the road and shines down a beam of light right on the road in front of him, illuminating a mattress on the road, which he would have hit. Um, he had time to swerve around it. Um, why would, you know, what's going on here? Um, RD6 Killer Clark uh, provides cases like this. There's like another case in Nevada. Three teenagers had gotten their car stuck in the sand in the desert. There was They were pretty far from civilization. They were going to have to spend the night. And a UFO shows up and lifts their car out of the sand and puts it on the road. That may sound unusual, but I have to tell you, I've written a number of books on various states, UFOs over California, New York, Nevada, Arizona. They all have what are called car lift cases, where cars are levitated. This is something UFOs do, and they help these kids out in that case. A number of cases involving people saved from car accidents. One lady was saved from assault. A couple of people saved of drowning. A case in South America from RD6 Color Clark, this UFO hovers over an entire village and protect, protects it from hurricane winds and torrential rains, which were threatening to wash away the entire village. Holy so, yeah, it does happen. One last question here this hour. How do healings compare to miraculous healings, UFO healings? How do they compare to miraculous healings? Yeah, well, the, as we mentioned earlier, there are other miraculous healings, and there's very strong parallels with angels, certainly. Yeah. Uh, another thing I looked into was near-death experiences, uh, which is you know connected to the other side and out-of-body experiences, astral travel. Uh, 20 or 30 cases of people have been healed of chronic illnesses and injuries through that, you know, a near-death experience. Another thing, and this was shocking to me, literally, no pun intended, was uh, lightning. Uh, I knew of a case, Mary Clamser, uh, who was cured of multiple sclerosis after being struck by lightning, looked into it. Turns out there's a long history of this, about 100 cases in the medical literature, like the Lancet Journal, you know, really reputable medical journals, have reported a wide variety of healings of paralysis, blindness, deafness, uh, cancer, and really a long variety of diseases stretching back over 100 years. Lightning. Well, well, we're just about out of time for this hour. And when we return, Preston, you're going to talk to us about underwater UFOs. I don't know if you knew this, but underwater UFOs are my favorite UFOs, except for cigar-shaped craft. They're also, I've actually put in my murals at Johns Hopkins University, various types of craft, especially those of the cigar shape. We'll be back with our guest in just a few minutes. Well, welcome back to us on 21st Century Radio. I'm your host, Dr. Bob Hieronymus, our executive producer, research assistant, Laura Cordner, and our engineer is Anita Brockenton. Now, we talked about the healing power of UFOs, but now we're going to one of my most favorite things in the whole wide world, undersea UFO bases, an in-depth investigation of USOs in the Santa Catalina Channel and published by Blue Giant Books. And we were just with our friends, Robert Skinner and his wife, Marlo Skinner. They were our guides through Southern California. And boy, did we have a wonderful time going to Venice Beach and other places like that. 
And there you have a good story on Venice Beach in here and a very large uh, possible UFO. Is that correct there? That is correct. Yeah, that whole coastline is just saturated with UFOs, USOs, unidentified submersible objects. But look, how did you get involved in researching underwater UFO activity? Uh, pretty much right when I started doing UFO research. Uh, you know, I lived up in Topanga Canyon area, which is right along the coast here in Southern California. Started to get reports of USOs. Now, I call them USOs because you can't really call them UFOs if they're not flying. Mm -hmm. uh, they're submerged. They're you know submersible. They're swimming. Uh, so that's the term that we use. But essentially, they are the same thing, I think. And uh, I found a bunch of cases. Um, I was interviewing these, like one lady. Uh, her name was uh, Linda Young, I believe it was, or perhaps Susan. I always get her two names mixed up, which is her middle name. I'm not sure. But at any rate, she's driving along with her friend. Her friend is actually driving along the Pacific Coast Highway. This is in uh, Santa Monica area. And out there on the water, she sees this really bright light kind of didn't look like a ship. It looked really strange. It was just this huge bright light. And she turns to her friend and points out the light and says, what's that? And as soon as her friend looks, literally that exact moment, this thing takes off straight up and disappears faster than any plane or even a rocket. Um, it was very unusual. I talked to another gentleman who lives in Malibu right on the beach and saw this really bright prism-like object flashing these multi-colors. And he thought for sure a boat was on fire out there. He called the Coast Guard, and they denied it. They said, no, there's nothing out there. And he says, well, I'm seeing something. Um, they said, well, maybe it's squid fishermen. And he says, no, I've seen those. Uh, and he saw this thing twice. So those were a couple of early cases which got me interested in this. I didn't really look into it until I published UFOs Over California. And by then I had amassed, you know, a good... 20 or 30 ocean-going UFO cases off the coast here and devoted a whole chapter to it and thought, you know, this would be a good way to publicize the book and started looking into it and found a bunch more cases and wrote an article for Fate magazine called Is There an Undersea UFO Base Off the California Coast? Because I had talked to this abductee who was not taken into a UFO. He was taken somewhere else. Uh, I was collecting a lot of these objects coming in and out of the water, cases of that. And uh, it just exploded from there. The History Channel called me up to do deep sea UFOs, uh, one and two, because it was so successful, it broke you know, rating records for them. And that brought in a flood of cases. Uh, started lecturing about this, that brought in more cases. So these cases literally just started flooding in. I didn't ask for it, it just sort of happened. It's your karma, for some reason or other. Uh, would you would you accept that that this is your karma? <laughs> um, yeah, I'll accept that. You yeah. know, I did find that this was a well-known hotspot, yep. Anne Druffel, you know, from the 1940s. Oh, God bless her, Anne Druffel. I'm oh. so glad you quoted her often in your book. She's a real lovely lady. Yeah, and a truly pioneering researcher. Yeah, really. One of the few woman researchers back, you know, in the day. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, very influential. She uncovered a bunch of cases, as did pretty much all the major Southern California researchers, like you know Robert Stanley, uh, Bill Hamilton, 
Barbara Lamb, Yvonne Smith, they all have cases. The, Robert mm -hmm. Stanley talks about how families would go down to the beach in the 70s and watch these objects coming in and out of the water. I verified that with other witnesses. This phenomena here off the coast is pretty well known among locals that this stretch of water between Santa Catalina Island and the mainland, stretching from about Santa Barbara all the way south to certainly through Malibu and Santa Monica and Rancho Palos Verdes, all the way even farther, Long Beach and San Clemente, I guess, would be the southern end. Uh, it's mile for mile really the top producer, or certainly one of them, mm -hmm. uh, on our planet of undersea UFOs. Well, UFOs and USOs, are, are they any different from one another? I don't think so. Uh, but what they do have is an ability to go into the water without making a splash. I mean, here's... <laughs> they got, I've always been fascinated. How do they do that? Does the water open up to them as they approach it? Yeah, it's, I think they must have a force field. Get this case. Here's a nice early case, 1954. The Japanese steamship, the Aliki, is off of Long Beach uh, when, you know, I think it was the Coast Guard intercepted this message. They see this fireball, what they thought was a fireball, comes zooming down and it crashes into the sea, uh, travels along underwater and comes out of the water <laughs> and takes off, keeps moving. Obviously not a fireball, right? Right. Uh, but, I mean, this thing is able to do something that we can't do, certainly. Uh, and there are a lot of cases like this where object, I would say it's most common for people to see something going into the water. Mm -hmm. uh, second most common to see it coming out. And a, there's a good number of cases where people see this stuff, you know, under their boat. Oh, boy, your stories there are just fantastic. Man, the lights, you know, the, like the green lights is up where you're going to talk, touch on there. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's some really dramatic cases. I mean, one guy off the on the northern end of all of this, a senior electronics engineer, you know, has this fully equipped boat and it's at night, it's pretty foggy, and he sees this green light ahead of him. And he's thinking, well, what's that? You know, this doesn't even look like a boat. Stops his, you know, boat because that's what you're supposed to do if you're in danger of a collision. And this thing approaches, not only approaches, pretty much makes a beeline for his boat. And this is a pattern of behavior, certainly that turns up again and again in a number of cases where these things target boaters this thing comes right under his boat and he says it was a, his depth sounder read i think it was 50 or 100 feet before it broke uh and it was much bigger than his boat it was this huge green oval or round object or light and his electronics went complete haywire his compasses started spinning his radio was um malfunctioning uh entire electrical system was completely haywire He's scared to death when finally this thing just moves on. And uh, what was that? I mean, yeah. not a submarine. Yeah. Uh, another guy says he's had his boat moored off Catalina Island or was traveling along the coastline there, and it lit up in this square pattern like a indoor swimming pool or something. <gasps> just very bright. Mm -hmm. um, another case of a boater being targeted. Yeah. Well, I'm glad I didn't take any boats out there. I <laughs> No, that that uh, that green light thing is just overwhelming as far as I'm concerned because I've seen too many bad movies uh, that you know that did something like that. Uh, and uh, to me, 
if you're on a little boat like that with these kind of things underwater and you're with your family or something, that, that would be just devastating. It really would. Sorry to get into that part of it, though. Um, so you noted that um, is it the most USO activity in this uh, particular area of, of where the undersea UFO base might be? Yes, yeah, certainly I've got reports from all over the world. Once people found out I was doing this research, a lot of people contacted me, got some really wonderful cases. Gosh, one I just have to tell you because it's so amazing. Well, tell us. Uh, it occurred in 1971 off the East Coast. Ray Sachs was an electrician's mate on the USS Clamagor. And uh, mind you, this is a Navy submarine that carried nuclear missiles. It was confidential at the time. Now we know. And uh, I was able to verify his medical records. A uh, very sincere gentleman who's elderly now and wanted to get his story out because it's incredible. They're booking along at 12 knots. They're on the surface of the ocean, heading north up the coast, the east coast of the United States at night. And uh, he's on watch with another petty officer. The commander is up there, and so is the second in command. And uh, they're not, not too far off the coast, when suddenly this USO comes approaching from the stern at about 100 knots, approaching oh, the... boy. Yeah, fast. Yeah. You know, this is 100 knots is, you know, 50, 60, 70 miles an hour. Uh, this thing was coming in very fast, much faster than we have the ability to do. And uh, it was big. It was this white circle of light. 20, 30 feet across and came right alongside the Clamagar there, the submarine, maybe, you know, 50 feet off, way, way, way too close for a, you know, ocean-going vehicle, and paced this submarine for the next 15 minutes. And one by one, the higher-ranking officers came up on deck because they wanted to see it and uh, took a look at this thing and had no idea what it was. Uh, it was pretty shallow there. It wasn't that deep. It made no sound and uh, kept pace with them perfectly. And suddenly at some point, you know, 15 minutes later, darted off at about 50 knots maybe in another direction. Meanwhile, Ray Sachs and the other lookout, they're just jibber-jabbering away, talking about it, wondering what it could be. Uh, this thing did not appear on sonar. Um, certainly they, the captain asked, that was the first thing he asked Ray, like, what did the sonar guys say? They couldn't see it. And uh, this thing is gone, and the second-in-command turns to the captain and says, Captain, how do you want me to record this in the log? This is according to Ray Sachs. And the captain, the commander, says to the second-in-command, Officers who report this sort of incident do not move up in rank. <laughs> Gets right to the point. <laughs> right? That's right. That's the way it goes. So it wasn't recorded. I have to believe, you know, the commander did tell his superiors, because uh, that's why he's there. I mean, that's he's there to look out for strange craft of any kind, uh, strange foreign craft, <laughs> extraterrestrial or otherwise. So I have to believe that, yes, it was recorded on on some level, but certainly not any written record of it, which is, concerns me. How often is this going on? Yeah. How how long has it been going on? Um, uh, you have an any idea how long this USO activity has been going on? Uh, well, certainly there are historical accounts. I mean, Christopher Columbus in 
Oh, yes. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yes. Yeah, I mean, which is some time ago. I mean, he reported a fairly dramatic bright object, you know, coming up out of the water, I believe it was. Uh, So there are some historical accounts. They're fairly rare. Uh, However, they certainly do exist. Looking into this area here, I found cases stretching back to the 1920s, a couple, 1930s. Didn't get really active until about 1947. Uh, There was this very interesting incident off the San Francisco Bay area where ships were trying to navigate and kept encountering this sort of phantom reef or this moving mountain, this undersea mass that was appearing on their uh, depth sounders and sonars and, or so on. Or, and uh, finally, it was causing such problems that they called up the Navy. The Navy sent a survey ship, the Mori, to check it out. And they, the Navy ship found this thing and tracked it down the coast, did not know what it was, all the way to California, Southern California, actually, and it moved out to sea a good 100, 200 miles. They caught it again and were getting readings on it when suddenly it moved away real quickly, and uh, that's the last they saw it. It's a great case, very early, and following that, there are high-quality cases at least once a year in this area. Well, we need to take a break here, so you get a lot of your best cases uh, together, and let us have them because this is thrilling. This is so exciting to me, uh, mainly because I know that since you did this work, it's credible. Others, I don't know, and that's really important to me, and that's an important. We'll be back with our guest, Preston Dennett. We are talking about the undersea UFO base. We're going to get into that in a few more minutes, an in-depth investigation of USOs in the Santa Catalina Channel. Blue Giant Books, 2018. Both books are available on Amazon. Hello, this is Ellie Flippin, niece of the late psychic, visionary, artist, and extraordinary individual, Ingo Swan. You can learn more about his archives, his paintings, and his books at ingoswan.com. You are listening to 21st Century Radio with Dr. Bob Hieronymus. Friend Meryl Fankhauser here. This is The Mother Ship. And uh, actually, all night, the rest of the night, the music we're going to listen to is all Meryl Frankhauser. Um, as a matter of fact, you did some... Are you with us, Preston? Yeah, I'm here. Oh, okay. And I want to thank you. I, I just remembered the page 177. You carried the story that we, we worked with Meryl. And uh, tell us a little bit about Meryl Frankhauser and, and, and his work. Yeah, I ended up contacting him because it turns out he's part of the story. Yeah. And uh, there was a follow-up that's actually not in the book. He contacted me again, which I can't wait to tell you. Uh, because how he became involved in stories, I heard that he uh, had heard about these sightings, and I wanted to verify that. He knew about this activity. And he did, in fact, said yes. Uh, when he was down in this area, uh, you know, at the time he was in his band, uh, he heard about this activity of objects coming in out of the water and was given an offer to actually go see it, which he regretfully turned down, uh, unfortunately. But uh, that wasn't the end of the story. It turns out uh, there was these weird radio signals coming off the coast here, uh, which this gentleman was picking up in only a certain area. It's very strange. turns out it's coming from this 
thing in the same area called, of this thing called the Malibu anomaly, uh, which we can get into, but looks like this weird artifact off the coast underwater. And it's one of the sort of data points that made me think is, you know, something going on here that might be involved with the undersea base. But Merrill Fankhauser got a hold of these weird radio tones and was able to use him in his music. And what's interesting about these tones is they sound very much like other tones that have been recorded from other UFO cases. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's just very interesting. And uh, you know, I've listened to how he used them, and it was fascinating and how well he was able to blend it in. And uh, you know, some months later, after the book's published, he contacts me. He's like, I have to tell you this. I was in Las Vegas and uh, came upon this gentleman who was a Chumash Native American, an elder. Now, this is significant because the Chumash lived in this area off the coast for many years, thousands of years. And uh, this Chumash elder told Merrill Fankhauser that uh, there about this Malibu anomaly, which is actually, you know, just to get into it real briefly, is the structure or with sort of these pillars and a flat top, and it looks like a tunnel located underwater off the coast, right in the center of all this activity. It, there's images it, images of it on the internet that have gone viral, uh, and what I find interesting is before this even broke that story, I had charted all these underwater UFO cases, and this sort of anomaly is right in the center of where it's all going on. And this, going back to Merrill Fankhauser and this uh, Chumash Native American elder, told him that they are aware of that anomaly, and in fact it. They don't think it's natural. They think someone built it, and it wasn't them. It was there, according to their oral tradition, it was there long before them. And in fact, sea levels used to be much lower, and they would their ancestors used to fish off of this thing. Oh. Is oh. what, you know, this guy told Merrill, which is fascinating to me because if you see the pictures of this thing, it's huge, and it does appear to have a tunnel. Uh there are some pictures that show, you know, it looks like a landslide, certainly debunkers have said, no, it's nothing but a, you know, it's called Sycamore Knoll. It's an earthquake fault. But, you know, from an objective viewpoint, I don't see how you can choose images that don't show a tunnel as opposed to ones that do either way. I'm kind of on the fence about it, except for the fact that I've had a number of whistleblowers contact me, ask me, do I know about the tunnel? I'm like, no, tell me. I had heard rumors, of course. Uh, one gentleman who's pretty reputable, he's contacted me before and his stuff is checked out, said, yeah, there's this tunnel that actually runs from Area 51 in Nevada all the way to Edwards Air Force Base up in the high desert in Southern California, <laughs> all, wow. all, right, all the way to uh, the Santa Catalina Channel area. That's I had a number of people tell me this, too. So this all started to build this sort of, uh, gosh, a... Uh, puzzle piece of all these sort of data points pointing towards the existence of an undersea base here. As a matter of fact, I'm going to hold up a book, your book, Undersea UFO Base, in our microphone here, because we've got some very advanced people out there that have listened to the show for 30-some years and have advanced themselves into seeing things like this. Take a look. at There's the front cover that shows you what... Uh, Preston is talking about. It's an interesting, interesting shot. 
Um, what? A, hey, by the way, what is your opinion on the work of Billy Meyer? Uh, well, I think that it's probably a legitimate case, uh, simply just because of the amount of witnesses that surround it. Uh, it doesn't rest only on his testimony. Uh, I believe probably a lot of his photographs are genuine uh, and his moving films. Generally, I do support the case. I don't think it's – there are parts of it that bother me for sure. Yeah, we, I think but, we but, all went through that, the, but, uh, the models that turned up and things like that. Yeah, uh, there's landing trace cases. I mean he turned yeah. in a metal fragment to Marcel Vogel who studied it, and it had all kinds of unusual properties. There are some 300 witnesses surrounding it, several books written – from other people yeah. who have seen stuff uh, happen. He's got a couple of healing cases, by the way. I think it's a legit case. Uh, there's so much smoke around it. You know, there's got to be a fire there. Yeah. Thank you for mentioning uh, our dear friend, uh, Dr. Marcel Vogel. He was, we were very close for a long period of time. And is he still alive? I don't think he is. You know, I don't know. I don't think so, though. Um, but well, he did some amazing work. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. Very kind. Another one of those people that serve, 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 give, give, give. Uh, he helped so many people back there in the uh, late 60s, early 70s, uh, when he used to visit us at the time. Uh, so it was wonderful hearing his name again. Uh, the Oh, you were supposed to, uh, and it's my fault. <laughs> you were supposed to go start giving us some of the best cases. I'm so excited by these things, uh, mainly because... Uh, there, there's so much detail. You give so much detail in these areas. It's not like other people's stuff that I've read, which are kind of general. So yeah, well, give us... whenever possible. Yeah, I tracked these cases down. I've talked to a lot of people myself. I talked to a submarine navigator, um, several Navy officers, police officers, um, all kinds of Navy people, really. Uh, so I, I did my homework on this. Let me tell you. Yeah, uh, I, I, you don't have to tell me that, brother. <laughs> I surveyed the literature far and wide. Uh, one of my favorite cases, probably in the entire book, is a classic case that occurred on January 15, 1956. I was investigated by Isabel Epperson, Len, Len Stringfield, and uh, other you know, pioneering researchers at that time. And on that evening, multiple residents of Redondo Beach, uh, who were there on the beach, saw this kind of uh, circular, glowing orange disc-shaped hmm. object come down in a gliding pattern and land on the surface of the water about 75 yards offshore. And it was just sitting there. A bunch of people started to gather and watch this thing as it sunk beneath the waves. And they could still see it glowing when lifeguards showed up from you know not only Redondo Beach but adjacent Hermosa Beach. And uh, they rode a boat out there and got over on top of this thing and could see that it was much bigger than their boat. They came back to shore. By this time, there's policemen there. There's night watchmen. There's a huge crowd of people. The water's frothing and making this kind of weird foam, and the object blinks out and disappears. Uh, most of the people go away, not everybody, because they waited till morning. The Navy was still investigating. They came out the next day and brought divers with Geiger counters, obviously taking this whole thing very seriously, right? Right. And uh, went out there and couldn't find anything, found nothing, found no evidence. And it was sometime later, you know, because this generated a huge publicity thing. It was in the papers. 
and people wanted an explanation. And the Coast Guard released a ludicrous debunking explanation that really angered UFO researchers and said that this thing was a light buoy, a buoy oh, with nice. a light on it. Oh. And actually, you know, had these officers hold it up and pose for the press. And you, they're holding this thing. It's about a foot wide, maybe two. And it's ridiculous because, for one thing, this thing fell out of the sky um, or came gliding, actually. It was 20 feet across. Uh, and it was quite uh, luminous for a long time longer than some of these things can do. So, I mean, there's just numerous details that don't fit a light buoy. Yeah. Uh, so it's really unfortunate that, you know, they felt that they had to do that. Uh, that's certainly a pattern that turns up in other cases, but that's one of my favorite cases. Do you think that the re some of the reasons why they still don't want any of this known is because they believe that people are going to go crazy if they find out that there's other life in the universe? Um, I think that that's a factor, and I don't think it's true. <laughs> I don't think people will go crazy. We've handled all kinds of things. Yeah, I agree. Uh, you, know, you may point to the War of the Worlds and say, well, people panicked. And I'll say, well, listen, War of the Worlds was uh, basically a horror story designed to in inspite terror and uh, was very effective in that regard. Uh, and that's not how it would go down. I think there's a number of reasons why this subject is being covered up. Uh, primarily because that was the pattern of behavior they established early on while they were trying to figure out what's going on. I think from a military standpoint, we do have to regard this phenomenon as a threat because it's unknown and it's hovering over our nuclear bases, over our dams, over our Air Force bases. It's stopping vehicles on the road. And for that matter, it's abducting people. So from a military standpoint, yeah, I have sympathy for them. <gasps> Uh, I do think that they have to tread lightly a little bit on around the subject, and any disclosure is gonna come open a can of worms. It really is. It certainly will. Yeah. Hey, what kind of witnesses have seen these USOs? Uh, you get a huge, wide variety. Mostly, it's the people living in this area. Uh, certainly, there are tourist cases, uh, pilots. I've talked to a pilot who is flying over the Santa Monica Bay with a student, and this giant UFO appeared next to them in cigar-shaped, glowing red, uh, and they were about to report it to the local air force or airport tower, decided not to because they didn't want to look like fools, and it just makes me wonder how many cases are not reported. Mm -hmm, sure. uh, but yeah, I mean, uh, certainly there's a good portion of military officers who are seeing this stuff. Uh, one guy I talked to, Gary Wagoner, was on the USS Long Beach, which is a nuclear-powered uh, aircraft carrier. He was on the far side of uh, Catalina Island. And uh, this is a pattern, again, that turns up with UFOs. They seem to be very attracted to anything nuclear. And he had an experience where these objects showed up. They were apparently on the water uh, some distance from them. They were huge. They were pulsating lights with sort of weird sort of triangle cut out of one section of them. Very peculiar. And they're just pulsate in intensity and brightness and size. And uh, he tried to contact the bridge, but they're like, listen, we can't talk right now. We're way too busy. It put the whole ship into complete chaos. Uh, but a very interesting case for sure. 
We're in a bit of chaos right now, so we're going to take a break here on 21st Century Radio. We're speaking with Preston Dennett, and we'll be back on with Preston Dennett and more about USOs. This is Dr. Jacques Vallée. You're listening to 21st Century Radio with Dr. Bob Hieronymus, the reference in the study of the paranormal. Merrill Fankhauser's Messages from the Dome. That's what we're listening to here. That has an, the alleged recording of a USO. Thanks to uh, Merrill Fankhauser and uh, the work of Billy Meyer, because that's what we—that's the information we sent to him, the piece that we sent to him, that he worked it out. Um, Preston, since there's so much military in the area. I think Point Mugu, I don't know if I'm pronouncing this correctly, Naval Base, San Clemente Island, uh, Seal Beach, Naval Weapons Station. How do you know people aren't seeing military test craft? Right. Yeah, there is a lot of It's pr- practically surrounded by military, uh, which is fascinating to me because there's so much activity here uh, that it couldn't possibly all mil- be all military. I've got five or six, you know, actually 10 reasons why I think it's not military, certainly most of the activity. Uh, the first being it's been going on for way too long. Uh, we have modern reports stretching back to the 20s, continuing all the way to the present day. Uh, it's just far too much of this going on, it's far too much activity for this all to be military. Uh, also, these craft that are being seen, and it's a really wide variety. It's not just saucer-shaped craft. It's you know V-shaped, manta ray-shaped, spherical. Uh, it goes on, cigar-shaped. Uh, these craft are way too advanced to be military. Uh, about 10 to possibly as high as 20% of these craft are actually being chased by military jets themselves. Uh, so we wouldn't be doing that if the, it was our own. Uh, secondly, a good portion of these witnesses are themselves military officers who are completely baffled as to what they're seeing and are convinced it's not ours. Ultimately, I think the dead giveaway is that these objects are behaving in ways that is completely contrary to how military personnel are would behave or even are allowed to behave. And by that, I mean they are chasing cars down the road, coming very low over people's homes, hovering in place, you know, lighting up the interior of their entire homes, uh, putting on what amounts to displays. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so there are a lot of reasons why I don't think it's military. Uh, there's a number of cases in this area which involve not 10 or 20 objects, which is not that unusual, but it's somewhat unusual. Uh, 30 or 40 objects. Oh, boy. 50, 100, 200 objects. And that is very unusual. I remember the first case I got in this area, 1992, uh, there was a wave of sightings on June 14th. And a couple who lived high on the ridge overlooking the ocean saw the whole thing happen. Mind you, I talked to 30-odd people all over the area who saw stuff independently and didn't know about each other. It's an extremely well-verified event in that regard. And this couple saw about 10, 20 objects come up from behind a ridge down by the ocean. And I thought, wow, really? And I said, well, yeah, actually, it was more than that. (laughs) 
you know, I went up to their house. They showed me everything, and uh, I talked to them. They've since become pretty good friends. And uh, they said this started around 8 p.m. that evening and went on until 11 p.m. And uh, there was multiple waves of objects coming up from behind a ridge to the point where they started to count them. After like the third or fourth time of you know, seeing 10, 20 objects, the lady, the wife, started to count these objects. And after it was done, you know, they went inside and closed the door and the windows. They didn't want to count anymore because they had counted 200 <laughs> objects. Um, it was very upsetting for them. Yeah. Um, the husband turns to me. He's like, well, I don't know if it was 100 or 200. She was counting, but it could have been only 100. I bust out laughing. Because I'm like, 100? Are you out of your mind? That's way too much. I mean, what is going on here? And uh, a bunch of people on that night saw multiple craft. I finally found another witness who was down by the ocean on that night in Venice Beach and saw an enormous stadium-sized craft come. He didn't see it rise up out of the water. He heard the water pouring off of it, which is very unusual in these cases. Usually, they're, you know, that doesn't happen. It doesn't, five or ten cases at least. Uh, and it did in that one. He said it sounded like Niagara Falls. And he looks over, and a bunch of people are screaming and watching this thing. It's huge. It's got tiny little craft around it. And those tiny craft he's estimating are probably 20, 30 feet, maybe 50, but they looked like little gnats next to this thing. And the whole fleet just books it up north, up the coast, northwest. Uh, up the coastline there very quickly. He says it was out of sight in two, five seconds at the most. Uh, amazing case. And my point is, I mean, I got another case off Catalina Island involving Boy Scouts. They saw 200 objects. Where are all these objects coming from? If there's not an undersea base down there, there's a, a parking lot or something going on down there. Yeah, you know that that these UFOs seem to be coming up from the water, not from coming down from the sky. Yeah, I've interviewed enough people who said they've seen a UFO that I'm like, all right, tell me what you saw. And generally speaking, people spot something swooping down out of the sky. Uh, this area has a number of cases where the stuff is coming from below and sometimes right out of the water there. I and mean, people watch it come out of the water. There's a few cases. Oh, this is so interesting. A lady was down by the Chart House restaurant there, right on Topanga Beach, uh, with her friends, and saw this object out there underwater. And this thing darts. She's estimating 500 miles an hour underwater. Underwater. That, can you imagine? I'm, no, I, it's hard to imagine. It's hard to go 30 miles an hour under, over water, let alone underwater. Uh, back to the underwater base. What, what is the best evidence for the existence of a base? Or that base. Right. What I've done is I've built a case, which I think is pretty compelling for the existence of the space, based almost entirely on circumstantial evidence. Uh, and by that, I mean we've got a huge number of eyewitness testimonies in a very defined area over a very long period of time. So something is clearly going on here. That's the first real data point. I think the second data point is the these mass sightings are such a large number of these objects coming from below. Where are they coming from? A third data point is the so-called Malibu anomaly, which we touched on. And, and is this giant stone structure underwater there, right where all this activity is going on, and it looks artificial. It has not been proven, but it hasn't been debunked 
either, not completely. Uh, then there are, of course, the whistleblower accounts. And this is not just people who say there's tunnels. There's a couple of whistleblower accounts of people who say, oh, yeah, there's a base there. I know about it. I didn't work at it directly, said one guy, but it's there. Another lady said she worked at it directly, and it's got military people in there who are working with gray ETs. Mm-hmm. And fifth data point, and this is sort of, I mean, well, all bets are off now, are the abductees, the you know, experiencers I've spoken with. And one gentleman's testimony is really compelling. He's a doctor, a private pilot. Uh, still, I still know him. He's a very lucid individual, very well-educated, and described how he had a missing time experience as a child on Catalina Island. He was actually on Avalon Bay at the time it occurred with his friend. And years, you know, through the years, had a number of close-up sightings and other experiences that pointed towards him being an experiencer and finally, you know, had enough of it and went to see Ivan Smith and had a regression on, during which he recalled this incident on Catalina Island. I believe this was back you know, quite some time in the 60s. He recalled not being taken into a UFO. He recalled being taken to an underground base, undersea, possibly. He saw a very large chamber with rock walls. He said it was very large, and uh, the walls were rough rock. He was placed on a bench. He was not afraid. He said they didn't hurt him at all. His friend appeared to be the target of the abduction, and uh, they saw praying mantis or insectoid type beings he said it was wearing this sort of a white sort of poncho type um, cloak over its shoulders and took his friend away into another area another chamber and that's basically all he recalled it wasn't a scary experience but he had the distinct impression that he was underground mm-hmm. so there you go i talked to another lady who had had an astral travel experience. This case is not in the book. And she's like, oh, darn it. You know, I wish I had known about your research because I had this experience where I went out of body into this base. And she said there were grays there and there was all kinds of really high-tech metallic-looking equipment. And she became frightened when the ETs were able, they looked at her, even though she was, quote, out of body, you know, in her astral body. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is something she does regularly. She's uh, claims to have this ability. And well, so, I mean, there's a lot of these little data points that point towards the why I think there's a base there. You know, you're so fortunate. You've lived in Southern California for a long time, haven't you? Most of my life, yeah. The people out there are really very special. You know, there's such a thing as there are parts of our country that are in much state or much higher state of consciousness than others, and with the experiences that I've had, the limited ones, especially when I'm working with a lot of Volkswagen people, and and they're all so enormously friendly and kind. Only every one of them that I know believes this particular idea that we are one people on one planet. So why in the hell are we fighting with one another? They're just very advanced souls. Um, and of course, there are a lot of esoteric traditions that say that. That was part of some uh, that that part that is the West Coast was part of an, a larger continent, and there are so many exciting things out there. But the people are just extraordinary. 
Yeah, I, I love this area, and uh, I do hope that we can all get along. I agree with you that times are turbulent now, but to me it's a good sign that we're waking up. Yes. And people Indeed. are aware of you know the corruption and greed and the damages it caused and how easily it can be solved by just reaching out to each other in a loving way. It's completely all right to disagree on issues. Uh, you know, I can clear a room pretty quickly bringing up UFOs. Just <laughs> give me a chance, you know. I can tell you that... You know, this is nothing to be afraid of. It's a subject I take very seriously. I think it can solve a number of problems we have globally right now, including the energy crisis, the economic crisis, All that. and the environmental crisis. And, so and, it's and, important. And especially dealing with health, health care issues. Boy, what a difference that would make. Uh, we got time maybe for one more question here. Have you ever seen a UFO USO? I haven't seen a USO uh, in the classic sense where it's, you know, underwater for sure. Mm -hmm. And yes, have seen UFOs. And it always blows my mind because I never saw anything growing up. I lived in an area that's a pretty well-known hotspot. And a bunch of people that I knew had seen stuff. And I didn't until I started investigating stuff directly. And I remember my first real encounter so well. Uh, and I think it's tied to the fact that I was investigating this so strongly is because I was targeted for sure by a UFO. I was driving home from my sister-in-law's house after discussing the subject. She was, you know, and my brother, they were helping me out. This was July, 1992. And at, at night, and I see this, what I thought was a bird come swooping down towards my car and instantly realized it wasn't a bird. It was a ball of light about the size of, a large golf ball, maybe bigger than a golf ball, a little bit and glowing bright right in front of my windshield. Ah, two feet, three feet swept back and forth two or three times, dipped down right below the hood of my car, went straight up through the canopy of trees and out into outer space. Uh, and I'm like, wow, that what was that? That was the first one. Where, where was that? That was in Woodland Hills, uh, not far from where I'm living now, actually. Uh, Woodland Hills, California. And you were you going to tell us about one more before we have to say goodbye? Oh, yeah, sure. This one lady, gosh, I had interviewed her. She was actually the lady who had been healed of a, a cyst. Uh, she showed me a UFO. First of all, I was transcribing her uh, testimony. I'm like, gosh, this is wild. I'm not sure if I believe it. When I had a very strong impulse to run into the roof of my condo, something I'd never done. And I uh, thought, what am I doing up here when this UFO showed up and it says, hi, we're, I'll call her Wendy, we're Wendy's ETs, kind of gave me this message. <laughs> I'm like, whoa, and it says, and it says we're real, watch this, and it darts around. Well, we are out of time, I'm awfully sorry. Preston, thank you for joining us, I uh, know we're going to invite you back in the future. And that's the show. 21st Century Radio is produced by Hieronymus and Company. Our executive producer and research assistant is Laura Cordner. Our engineer is Anita Brockington. And I'm Dr. Bob Hieronymus.